Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. That uh, range is called the Overton Window, and on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, it takes time and effort to know what is going on, and that knowledge can shape the bounds of the Overton Window. Uh, Sarah Curry found that there wasn't good information available in Iowa about the debts local governments were asking voters to approve. So she put together a database on what was being asked and whether voters approved those debts. Uh, Sarah is the research uh, director at Iowans for Tax Relief Foundation, a research and advocacy group. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, it seems like that information about what debts are being authorized is pretty important. Why wasn't it available? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've worked in a couple different states now, and in some states it is readily available. Uh, so when I got to Iowa and started looking, it wasn't available. Um, so if you wanted to see when your last school bond passed and, and how much was left to pay or, or when your city built their last convention center or public swimming pool or whatever it was, you couldn't find that information out. And the other thing was, if you could find the information out, you couldn't find out what the voter turnout was. And so that just really bothered me because I feel like voters should know when things have been passed, because as local governments continue to ask taxpayers for more and more and more, I think that history is really important so that everyone has context for what they're asking. And this is just database. Here's all the questions that are on the ballot. Here's here's what uh, voters are being asked for. It seems like it should be easy to obtain that information. Um, yeah, is that it is. I mean, it's really a simple concept. Um, so in Iowa, the local auditors are the ones that control the information. So if you're lucky enough to live in a county where the auditor really cares about elections, all of that information is on their website. If you are unlucky enough to live in a county where the auditor doesn't care or they don't put a lot of money into their IT department or their website, you have no information whatsoever. And so, again, it's just not fair for Iowans to not have that information or have that information based upon where they live. So I really started this project trying to bring transparency to Iowans, but also trying to force the secretary of state who does record all of this information for, you know, state house and state Senate and congressional races to also do it for local bond elections, because I feel like those are equally as important. So that's kind of how this project got started. What do you want people to do with this information? Well, um, it's quite interesting, actually. We have, so Iowa had special elections. Like everyone's very familiar with the November elections, uh, but we had a big um, election in March where there was 20 plus bond elections for school districts and cities and counties. And so I went and asked all 99 auditors if they had a bond question on their ballot, put that information out there. And then because they don't report on it, I had to go back to all of those auditors and say, what was the voter turnout? Who voted yes? You know, how many voted no? And so I reported on that information. And to my surprise, lawmakers were watching and they saw that this was a problem and that the voter turnout was horribly low. And I, I do want to give some context to the voter turnout and why that's so important. So Iowa is the first in the nation presidential caucus. Iowa has one of the highest voter registration totals of its population of all the 50 states. So we have a very, very engaged electorate. 
when I was looking at these special elections, sometimes only one and a half to two percent of the vote of the registered voters were participating in these bond elections. And I think it's because they were being held in these off times that nobody knew when they were happening. So the legislature looked at that and said, we're going to require direct notification for bond elections now, meaning that the the entity that is asking for the money has to pay for a postcard to send to every registered voter to say, you know, ABC school district is asking for a bond of $30 million to build a new gymnasium. And you send that to the voters. And that way they know that the bond is coming up. Um, that bill went into effect this summer. And it also moved all the bond elections to only be in November. So you can't have these random elections in March and September and whenever anymore. They're only in November. So this past November, I did the same thing. I went to all 99 auditors and I collected all the data and the voter turnout was much, much higher. Um, and I, I just think that's a success, right? It, we're not saying these are good or these are bad bonds. What we're saying is people need to be engaged and people need to have a voice. And if their community is signing themselves up for a 20 year payoff, there should be significant voter engagement. And that's what we saw. So it was a successful project. The Secretary of State still is not recording all of the local bonds. Um, and so that's something that we are still pushing for. Uh let me go a, a little bit uh, further than you, which is um, uh, we have these bond elections because we want to make sure that these public debts are popular, as in we want the at least the majority of the rules, the ma uh, simple majority of voters to endorse or to be willing to go into debt and to and to vote for uh, vote for these kind of things. And you know, that to ensure that the things that our government does is popular. Uh, and supported by the people. And that's really tough to figure out when only one and a half percent of people are voting in these elections. Uh, and I think our government administrators generally are biased towards the government doing more and having more assets to, to do what they want. And so they've kind of gained some of that requirement for popular approval in their favor by having uh, 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 debt elections uh, in, in elections where only a tiny number of voters show up. So I think that's a huge improvement in 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 the basic policy that uh, that is in place in Iowa and, and in I think I believe most states have voter approvals for new debt authorizations. Uh, well, you'd uh, be surprised. So Nebraska, they had some school bonds and it was a mail in ballot only. Mm -hmm. And they mm. can be at any time. And and you talk about low voter uh, yeah. turnout. The other thing Iowa does, um, we require 60% passage rate for okay. bonds, not just a simple majority. So, Okay, that's interesting too. But that uh, the general principle is that we want our governments to be doing popular things to have the things they're doing supporting uh, uh, supported by the people and on fiscal matters, especially of taxes and bonds. Uh, you can't exactly trust lawmakers directly to represent the people's interests, but what you can do is to ensure that they're popular by asking voters directly to approve of these things. And in a lot of places, that requirement has kind of been gamed by our public officials to ask during right times or gosh that mail-in thing sounds like a very strange way of ensuring that the things that you want is popular uh, but there are a number of things that our governments have done to try to game that system to not really get the sense of the pub uh, of the public on on these questions I think it's an important uh, it's important information uh, I think it, it sounds like in Iowa they've 
are your lawmakers have validated that it's important information to get out there and that they want uh, uh, to get the best sense of the public by requiring it on these November ballots. Uh, why didn't the state ask to post all that information online? Why are they still relying on you to do it? Uh, well, the Secretary of State did cover the election, which I was very surprised about and happy. It made my reporting job a little bit easier. Mm. Um, but then it went away. And so they said they were just doing it for the election. So I've called a few times and said, can you just keep this on your website? Um, where was the 2017 and 19 election? And they said, oh, we did that. Why is it, you know, and so even their own staff is surprised it's not on the website. But, you know, I I'm one of those people that I want things in statute. I want to know what mm. the expectations are and I want to know going forward. It's, it's a solid thing so people can research these things. So that's what we're working towards. Well, what do you think people did with the information you assembled? Oh, it went all over the place. I called the Newspapers Association. I called public radio. Um, I, I called a lot of places just asking, like, do you have this information? Would this be helpful to you? Why isn't this being reported? And, you know, and surprisingly, the League of Cities and the Association of School Boards, they thought that this was already being recorded at the Secretary of State's office. They had no idea. And uh, the Newspapers Association said, we would love to report on local bonds, but it's too much work for us to go and ask all 99 auditors and then compile it all. But if someone were to do it, we would definitely report on it because our listeners want to know about this stuff. So I'm, I was happy to do that. And so a lot of people ended up using it. Um, it got a lot of headlines. I think it got a lot more people talking. And I think that also contributed to the higher voter engagement. And, and again, at the end of the day, like you said, that's what it's about. It's about getting voters involved, civic engagement, because really the decisions made at the local level impact us on a daily level. But that's act where people know the least about or the least about what's going on. So that's where we're trying to fill that gap. Yeah. Uh, again, the public policy, the public benefit uh, uh, from these things in the first place is to make sure that the fiscal policy of your local government is popular. How do you check that? By checking directly with voters about whether it's popular or not. Uh, that information was not, or at least the information about what voters were being asked for was not uh, in the, um, was not public information for, well, it was public information, but it was public information that no one was assembling. Uh, but uh, which means that people uh, people don't know as much about these bond elections, uh, how your places compare with uh, with other people. Um, I guess what other information do you think that this helped uh, this helped to inform voters, or is it just that these things are happening at all, and uh, you get more than one and a half percent when people know that they're going on? Well, so I'm sure this is happening in Michigan, along with everywhere else um, assessment property assessments are up and so when your assessments go up a lot of times the amount that you pay in your property tax also goes up and so that's tr true here in Iowa as well and so you know inflation has hit groceries are more expensive and people are having to pay higher property tax bills and so when we look at all of this debt that goes on to the property tax that's how they pay for this debt and so yeah really that's voters... a, sorry um, let no, me ahead, lay yeah. out the lay out the issue in it, uh, voters are not just asked to approve debt millages in these in these questions. They're also authorizing property taxes to be used to pay down those debts. Exactly. And so there's a direct impact to the taxpayer when we're talking about local government debt. And, and so that's really where we were taking it home. We're like, look at these districts. 
Um, part of our ITR local project, we have reported the property tax revenues for a lot of these districts, and we've compared it to population and inflation, or for the case of the school's enrollment. And so we did call out a few districts, and we're like, your enrollment has declined 15% in the last five years. Why do you need a new concession stand for your football field? Hmm. You know, is that really a necessity in 2023 when people are fighting all of these issues? Are you really raising property taxes for that? Now, in some cases, schools were like, you know, we need a new HVAC system for our elementary school. You know, that sounds like a reasonable need. Um, they weren't asking for, I guess, shiny objects is what I like to call them. And so that's the stuff that we looked at. Have you been spending? Have you been kind of manipulating or abusing the taxpayers? And then is your enrollment growing? A lot of the Des Moines metro areas, they're growing. They have a legitimate need. There were a few counties that needed a new jail or a new EMS system. And those measures did pass. Uh, we found the measures that were, you know, a bit greedy, I guess I could say. The districts have been spending and spending and spending every year. Their de enrollment's declining. And I'm speaking primarily about school districts. Um, those bond measures did not pass. And I think that's good because I think voters are looking to the district and they're saying, why do you need this money? Why don't we cut back a little bit? Do you really need a turf football field in the middle of rural Iowa? Um, and so, again, we didn't really weigh in on the specifics of every project. We really just reported, hey, the, here's all the districts that are asking for shiny objects. Here's the enrollment. Here's the property tax growth over the last 10 years. As a voter in that community, you need to make the decision. Um, so th that's the other side of it. Property taxes hurt. Like they are painful um, to pay every year. I really don't like getting my bill and having to write that check. And, and so anything I can do to lower that bill personally and, and my for my family is something I want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it seems like what you're doing is one of the uh, well. Let's let's lay out the Overton window at least on this municipal bond transparency issue, uh, which is that there is a requirement, um, at least the statute, like the, the policy is you got to get popular approval for uh, for your property tax millages and your debt millages, uh, and and before it was currently it was policy to ask voters in low turnout elections it's, it's kind of bad justification for uh, for it and you've kind of shifted that it's also politically acceptable or sorry that is no longer politically acceptable because it is now policy the task in the November policy debate but it's still uh still not quite public policy to tell vote or tell, to have a statewide database over the questions that are being asked that's something that you're you're providing is there anything else that you think is politically possible on the transparency side, at least for around these popular uh, uh, popular approvals of ballot questions? Oh, yeah. So there's additional ballot questions like um, hotel motel tax or mm -hmm. a local option sales tax or um, there's different little levies that cities or school districts can can put on there. And so there's no voter notification about those measures. Mm -hmm. Those measures have not been moved to November. Um, and so that's something that we're looking at. We would like to move all fiscal tax questions to the November ballot. Um, and, and there are some technical issues with that because the ballots cannot be more than two pages long. November elections tend to have more on them. So, you know, the auditors have to work with that. Mm -hmm. And so we're working with the Secretary of State trying to find a solution. But again, I just want voters to know, like, what's going on. And if their taxes are going to go up, 
they should know about it and they should have a say. And right now, some of the stuff is slipping through the cracks and voters have no idea about it because who goes to a, an election in the middle of September? I mean, I know that I try to take vacation or celebrate my kid's birthday in September. I'm not worried about voting. So even me, as active as I am, I have missed elections sometimes because they just slip them in. And so uh, that's kind of the stuff that we're still working on. But, you know, I try to be reasonable. I try to understand like there is a technical and a practical aspect to this. And auditors cannot hand a voter four pages of questions and expect them to actually answer it and you know and and reporting all of that so so we're working through it and and hopefully i'll have an answer soon and we'll figure something out it sounds like all that uh type of information ought to be within the overton window already like it should be politically popular to ask uh voters to approve these things only on the higher turnout elections um do you think that's the case or is i well the way to stop doing that is just um disinterest or like if if or uh, your lawmakers are happy with the status quo, they don't really have to do anything about it, uh, even if it might be more popular to ask these questions on higher turnout elections. I think there's a disconnect, at least in Iowa, because a lot of our state lawmakers um, did not serve local office and vice versa. You know, the local office, they don't really understand their responsibilities of the state and, and the difference and so I think there's an educational deficiency there on what are local matters and what are state matters and then um, the rules of how everything is governed. I think the other problem is that, and you know this, James, we always look to other states, right? Mm -hmm. What is Michigan doing? And then what is Illinois or what is Ohio or what are our neighboring states doing? What are similar sized states doing? There are no nation. You don't want to be the embarrassment in the. In, right. In the or you world. want to say, hey, that's a really great idea. You guys yeah. did that and you've had great success. Let's let's try to mimic that. Um, or and you don't want to be the embarrassment. Exactly. Um, there's no databases on municipal bond elections. Like there's none. I've contacted a bunch of uh, municipal bond attorneys. I contacted Moody's. Mm -hmm. I've asked a ton of groups and they're just like, no, every state has their own rules and regulations regarding municipal bond elections. No one has taken the time to inventory that. It's not a sexy enough topic for an academic to go in and, and create a database on that. But if you're a um, up and coming master's or PhD student, you need a thesis topic. There is, that's one that's ripe <laughs> for the literature. So that's the other thing I ran into is just there wasn't great comparisons. Um, mm -hmm. Again, so I think Iowa is the lead. Like right now, I can say we're the only state that has direct notification for bonds. I have done my due diligence and tried to see if another state does it. To my knowledge, no other state does it. Yeah, uh, I hadn't heard of that uh, before either. Uh, in Michigan, it's uh, for, at least for the for the debts that are required to get authorizations and for um, for new property tax millages, they do have to be approved approved by voters. There's a hundred. Uh, word description of what they're being asked to approve, a uh, requirement that they be neutral language, and and I think that's that's all right. But we also allow um, debts or uh, debts and taxes to be authorized on uh, in May and August uh, elections and other other types of low turnout elections too. And I'd like to see that change because again, the the point of this is that uh, the point of the policy is that the the fiscal policy for your local government should have popular support, which means asking uh, voters during the elections where most of them show up. Uh, yeah. You're not getting a good 
uh, good statement of public sentiment in low turnout elections. But I think our lawmakers want it to be done on those low turnout elections because they can they generally are, are more interested in having more resources. Um, so that's kind of what policy does. But oh, what well, you've done. definitely a group that likes having these low turnout elections at special times so that they can advocate on behalf of their little special interest. And, you know. Yeah, there, there's definitely another side to it. For those out there that are listening, you're like, this sounds like a slam dunk. Why would anyone be opposed to this? There is opposition to increased transparency. Yes. Uh, but uh, I think what you've done is is just try to uh, get more interest in this so that, uh, that the public is more informed and that the public sentiment uh, are on these issues uh, prevails. Uh, that's letting people know what's on it, uh, what uh, what they're being asked to approve, um, when the elections are, and then uh, then here's all the different stuff that's that's around the state, so that people are more informed. They they can bring their opinions and ensure that um, uh, bond millages uh, or bonds and debt are popular. Mm -hmm. So you're you're a public policy advocate like I am. Uh, that's important information that you uh, that you brought to the table. What are some other pieces of information that you'd like to have, not just on you know, local local ballot questions? Like what would make your job easier? What what are some things that you think would help shift the Overton window? Um, well, I will say we are working towards that um, in Iowa is trying to fill some of those gaps that we had talked about. So taxpayers not understanding all the taxes that they pay and where they're going. Um, so I've had to do some digging. Uh, luckily, I'll say Iowa has really good record keeping, um, but it's not ideal. Like I would love to have historical information on county property taxes and, and how mm. far they go back. Um, uh, which I, is also interesting because that's the oldest state tax, property taxes. They yes, have a long yes. and complicated history. And, and, you know, property taxes were enacted in Iowa before statehood. I don't know if they were in Michigan as well. So they have a long history here. Um and they've been abused and they have a very important role in our state's history. And so I think learning from history is very important so that you don't repeat mistakes of the past. And then also I think educating lawmakers today and saying, hey, this tax was created in 1910. It made sense in that decade. It doesn't make sense today. Why don't we reform this thing? And so sometimes just having that simple history really can make a difference and just updating your tax code. So I think having an easier to access history of when taxes were enacted and why they were enacted at the time would be really helpful for me. I think another thing too is um, we actually engaged on this project, but we went through all the cities and the counties and we just said, what are their reserve funds compared mm -hmm. to their property tax revenue? And the reason why we did that is because Iowa enacted a property tax reform law that reduced the amount of taxes that these local municipalities can collect. And so, of course, we heard all of the classic things, you know, oh, your grandmother's going to die because the EMS isn't going to be able to run or, you know, we're going to have to cut firefighters or police officers and kind of all of these heartthrob stories. Well, when we went back and we looked, none of those things actually happened um, because these cities have like two and three hundred percent of their annual revenue in, in essentially like a savings account. And so we're like, you could not charge property taxes for two years and you would be totally fine. And you're going up to the Capitol and saying you're going to have to lay off firefighters because we're cutting your budget by 2%. Like, that's ridiculous. And so um, ITR has done a really good job of trying to 
bring awareness to some of that. But I think just more of that stuff, just being, I mean, you know this, James, right? We look at these local government budgets and heck, even the state budget, it's not easy stuff. And then you try to explain it to someone that's single mom with two kids running here and there, and they've got all this other stuff going on. They care and they want to make the right decision, but they don't have the time to invest to understand it all. And, and so I think that's just yeah. a deficiency of government in its entirety. It's just, it's complicated and it's not easy. I mean, I'm trying to learn school finance right now. Like that, that's not easy and it shouldn't be that way. Like our kids are going to school and that's where the majority of our taxes go. Why the third is it so most expensive government that? service behind uh, entitlements and national defense, public schools. Yes, I know. And so it's like something as simple as, I mean, it, it should be simple, right? It's public schools. They've been around for a long time. And we all engage in it, whether you get stuck behind a school bus driving to work or your kids or grandkids go to school, but nobody understands how they're funded. And I think that's a really big problem in our society. And so I'm trying to help bring awareness to that as well. And but first, I have to figure it out. So I spend my 40 hours a week studying school finance and it should not take that much time. Let me uh, throw something out on the local government of some information that, that if we had this, I think it could really result in better government services, which is. Um, a good quality measure for local government service quality, as in how well are you doing, you know, uh, uh, fire and police and trash pickup, if that's one of the things uh, uh, that your government provides. There's very little that's out there or that's available for this so that we can't really compare uh, our local governments like which uh, which governments are doing the better job with the resources that they have? How can we figure out how to do uh, uh, to do better with less? You know, these questions that we ask the private sector, but never the public sector. Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. So, you know, if you're investing and you're like, oh, which has got the better computer system, Apple or IBM? You can go and look at all these measures and you can compare them and see who's profitable, mo most more profitable and who's going to mm -hmm. do better in their stock values. It doesn't work that way for local government uh, or government really in general. And so if I look at a community, I don't see how much they're funding their police force. Mm -hmm. I just see if their crime rates are up. And, you know, that might not be the fault of the police department. It just might be the situation, you know, there's other situations there. Um, you know, in Iowa, we started doing a lot of benchmarking because that's the only way that we can really compare. Okay, you're spending this much in incentives, and this is how what this is what the statewide average is. This is how much you spend in capital improvements. This is what the statewide mm -hmm. average in. That's not a great measurement, but that's really all we can have because the city of Des Moines, which is you know near a quarter of a million people, is going to spend a lot differently than a town of 75 people, yet they yeah. all have the same taxing authority. And so looking at those percentages of their budgets and how much they're spending, again, it's not a perfect science. That's the only way that we've been able to come with up with it. Um, but that's where I think the news is so important. And that's why I hate that local newspapers are going away. Because I think, you know, investigative journalism at the local level is the whistleblower on a lot of these bad decisions and they do hold these local government officials accountable. And when those start going away, we start losing some of that stuff. Um, another thing that we've really looked at here is, so I don't know what Michigan is, um, but Iowa does not have a minimum population threshold for the size of city. So we do have a city with 10 people in it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, I, I would argue that 10 people is a little too small to actually have like a taxing functioning city. Uh, and so that's something I'm looking at too, is the amount of money and can they even fill their city council? Can they even, you know, fill all the positions that's required of a city? So I think looking at some of that stuff, just from a basic efficiency standpoint, and then also like it goes the other way too, right? If you have a lot of big cities in the Des Moines metro area, they're all jam packed in there together. Do they really each need their own police force or could they just share um, and, and maybe find some efficiencies there, both from a public safety standpoint, but also from a taxpayer standpoint. And so just analyzing those different things. And I'm sure it's different in Michigan, you know, because you have a different geography than we have down here in Iowa. Um, I'd be, have you guys found any way to accurately measure or compare governments to keep them in check? So we're working on that. Um, there, we've got some ideas, but this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have uh, this conversation with you. And and this is, I'm going to get a little conspiratorial with, with you. It's like, all of this information is public. It is available. Why is it that we are the ones who have to assemble it to tell, let people know on, on some of these basic questions? Like, why don't we have good measures for local government service quality? It feels like that is really important public information that should be used to hold our local government officials accountable uh, to ensure that we can you know, try to uh, use best practices, try, try to get a better deal for the public. Why is it that we're the ones that, that have to do this? Why aren't our public officials arguing about service quality? And I can't help but think like they don't want that. Um, government, uh, ad, uh, our, our public officials would prefer not to have this level of accountability. They would prefer not to have an expectation that they do more with less. I mean, their jobs are just easier if they get more resources, if they are able to uh, not, not worry about public opinion uh, and don't have voters saying, hey, you guys aren't doing as, uh, you guys in Midland aren't doing as good of a job as the people in Elkton are, are, are doing. Um, I think that's that's accountability that they don't want. And so it is left to our outside actors to try and figure that out or not. As you mentioned, newspapers, although I think a lot of newspapers wind up being kind of captured by local government interests of like, you know, their their sensibilities are more with public uh, public officials than with the public in, in general. I don't know. What do you think of that? You know, I'm going to try to take a glass half full approach at this and say um, a lot of elected officials, I think their heart is in the right place. Even if I don't philosophically agree with them, I think they get involved because they truly want to make their community a better place. I don't think they're all educated. And I think a lot of the problem is a lack of resources to our elected officials and maybe biased information that our local officials are getting. And I'll give you an example. I have a good friend of mine. He got on our local school board. He knows absolutely nothing about public education other than he sends his kids to school and they have to get good grades. Um, well, now he's getting faced with all these questions of like curriculum and, you know, spending questions and bond elections. He has no idea and he is trying to do the best he can. And the only guidance he's getting is from our school administrators and our superintendent. Well, those two characters um, are paid for with tax dollars and they have a vested interest in keeping the status quo or making their district look shiny and, and prettier than the other districts. And so he's kind of set up to fail, right? He's got six kids. He works a full-time job. He's got a wife. 
He's on the school board because he means well. He volunteers at his church. And where is he supposed to take the time to go learn about this stuff so that he can make an educated decision? Now I have another city council member. You know, he's retired. His kids are grown. And he ran for city council because he cares. But he's got a lot of spare time. And so he and I have a weekly chat where he goes through the stuff and reads it and asks questions. You know, he's doing a really good job, but he's having to put a lot of time into it. And so I think when these local elected positions were created, the idea was not that it was another full time job. And I feel like in today's world, we move so quickly and there's so much information that it has turned into a full time job. But we don't pay, at least in Iowa, we don't pay school board members. You know, they have their meetings and then they move on. And so I think the whole system almost needs to be rethought or it really gives organizations like yours and I's James, you know, a, a purpose, you know, we need to, like, I'm actually coming up with a guide of, you know, questions school board members should ask their administrators because they need that. And no one else is providing that service to them because I don't think 50 years ago they needed it because the schools were not as, um, it wasn't as complicated back then. And so it just, things didn't move as fast. I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I'm, again, I'm trying to take a very optimistic approach to it. Um, it's probably different in your bigger cities. I'm sure in like your Detroit and your Midland where people are a little more sophisticated and they have more professional staff. Um, it looks different like that in Iowa and Dubuque, but in our smaller communities, it's, it's just, it's not. Uh, I mean, yes. Uh, well, I agree with you that uh, a lot of the, uh, like, these public administ uh, administrative bodies are supposed to be guided towards the public benefit and then also uh, guided by citizens who care about the public's benefit. Uh, and they should have that in mind. And too often uh, institutions are captured for the benefit of the institution itself rather than the, the benefits that they provide the broader public. You're, again, superintendents uh, wanting, uh, wanting to look good and, uh, uh, regardless of whether they're doing a good job or not. And again, like for most public administrators, uh, they would rather do more with more, not more with less. Um, and that's just kind of sets things up in, in a way that, uh, that isn't conducive towards making sure that citizens get the best deal for, uh, for their money. Uh, but yeah, there are, uh, and to that extent, helping public, uh, the, the people who are on these boards, who are elected officials, gain expertise, help understand how they can, uh, they can better serve the public interest, provide that important counterweight to the, uh, to their administrators. Yeah, that would absolutely help, uh. Uh, is it is it us that needs to do it? That's one of the questions that I've been uh, uh, been talking around. It's like, why is it that that we tend to be the voices for better, the only counterweight to the voice against more? And I feel like that, like this, this we should want our public officials to do more with less. Like everyone would benefit, except for the public administrators who have a harder job. I know. It's like the League of Municipalities and the Association of Counties and your Association of School Boards needs to go sit through Financial Peace University with Dave Ramsey <laughs> and, and learn how to live within their means. And they don't. Um, and that happened. Again, that's where that history comes in. When did that shift occur? You know, I, I don't feel like that was happening in our grandparents' generation. Maybe it was. And, you know, they just weren't aware of it because they weren't a policy wonk like I am. Uh, but I do feel like there was a shift you know, and, and I don't know when or why. And yeah, so I agree with you. Um, but 
you know, it's, it is interesting. You, you listen to a lot of people though, like how many people out there that are listening right now have a lot of credit card debt? How many people out there have a ton of personal loans and they think, oh, if I borrow more money, I can borrow my way out of this problem. And that's not how it works. And I feel like when those people get elected to public office, they take that same financial outlook and they, it's even worse, right? Because it's not their money, it's the taxpayer's money. Well, if we could just get a little bit more money, we could fix this problem. If we just get a little bit more money and we pay this developer, then we can have really nice roads. And that's not how it works. It doesn't work in your personal life and it doesn't work in government. You know, why can't we pay cash for things? You know, why do you have to be 70 years old before you don't have a mortgage anymore? Like, that's not how it should be. And that is how it should be. So I almost feel like it's a systemic problem of just financial responsibility um, all the way around. But again, I'm an, I'm a weird duck there. So I was investing in mutual funds in my early 20s, <laughs> not running out to the bars. Um, so I know that I'm odd in that sense. But I, I do think it's a bigger problem of just money management in general. Well, Sarah, good luck in your efforts to shift the Overton window. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.